0: Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, you will hear from Anne Catherine Eisfeld, who shares some interesting insights into the importance of addressing racial disparities and survival differences in patients with acute leukemias and ongoing research in this space. Thank you for having me. and. Um... Thank you for letting me talk about a topic that's very important to me and that we unfortunately do not um, address often enough um, which are um, survival disparities that we have in, in our patients with acute leukemias. Um, and the survival disparities I'd like to uh, address today and I, I think where I hope to, to raise awareness even more for and, and discussions within, within the group and within the field Uh, disparities with respect to ancestry and, and, and self-reported race. Um, In basically every cancer, but as we've shown, and as many groups have shown also in acute leukemias, black patients, um, both, if you just look at self-reported race, or even if you look with respect to ancestry, do significantly worse. Than non-Hispanic white patients. And I just for simplicity, for the rest of the talking, will refer to to, to, to white and, and and black patients here. Um, and the, the reasons for this are numerous. And and the elephant in the room, and um, I think one has to just talk frankly about it, is structural racism. Um, it affects so many parts um, of our lives. And um, it, we are very often unaware um, what what all can affect a person's survival. It starts from access just to to care to, to, like, lower socioeconomic features that are just more common in, in, in certain populations in here. Um, and especially also access to, some, for example, comprehensive cancer centers. This is where the clinical trials are being done. If you're not enrolled into a clinical trial, you will not have access to novel agents. You will not have... Um, Um, we will not be included in these pivotal studies. And at the end, for example, we will not even know how um, some of these new drugs that really change the lives of so many of our patients, that's what we talk about here at the conference, right? Um, We don't know how they work in, 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 in black patients because there are no black patients, almost no black patients enrolled. And this is because there's just so much less access and there's so much less education about the importance of clinical trials. And this is really on us, um, on us as a medical field and us as a society that we have to do better there. Because if patients are not getting enrolled into clinical trials, it doesn't, it, it doesn't only mean that they're missing out on these agents. It doesn't only mean that they're missing out on the, like, the great support that comes with clinical trials. It also means that they are never asked to, for example, provide their sample into a biobank that means that we will never learn anything about their specific leukemia. And this is what it at the end is all about, right? We, we want to do personalized medicine in order to do personalized medicine. We have to understand the person and we have to take every person the, with the same significance, with, with the same importance. And we, we have to understand the cancer in order to treat it right. And if we don't um, put the resources into that, this will just not happen. And this is what happened over the past decades. We have a very good, I would at least say, understanding about acute leukemia. That's what I spent my life on um, is acute leukemia genetics. And it's about finding out which of the gene mutations, which markers work best in which patient. This knowledge comes from large studies, from sequencing studies, where we looked at the entire tumor DNA And we looked at the epigenome and we looked at the transcriptome, but we looked at the epigenome transcriptome and gene mutations of white patients. Um, Even from the U.S., the largest studies, we have over 2,000, 3,000 whole exomes that were analyzed to understand the tumor DNA of acute leukemias. Less than 2% of the patients were not white. So this means we really have, at the moment, no idea. All our knowledge that we have, all novel agents are based on this knowledge. Um, and uh, when this became more clear over the past years, and this is unfortunately a topic that has been ignored for a long time, um, and where, which is very uncomfortable. And, and also for myself, I feel I made so many mistakes and since I'm working in this area to not offend people. What, what should you be working on? But it has been ignored for a very long time and that, that doesn't make it better. So I think i rather, you know, what you have to do is that you have to talk to people, understand the concerns of people, and then all work together as a community and as a scientific field, as a, as a human field to, to, to improve what we do, what we do on an everyday basis. So what, when we started looking, um, confirming um, at the survival of, of black and white patients, and as as I pointed out before, in AML, like in every other cancer, black patients do significantly worse. Doesn't matter if you look in the community or if you look even in the setting of clinical trials. Um, we first get the question, and I think that is very important, that some of the survival um, disparities might, for example, also stem from the fact um, that um, if you have like less resources, you're less healthy, you have like higher comorbidities. But even if you look at very young patients, um, patients 18 to, um, to 29 years old, so the very young, they should have cure rates of like almost 90% of the leukemias, um, 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 not cure rates, um, they, black patients at that age live almost a decade shorter. They, they don't have different comorbidities. So what they have is earlier, early death rates. That means they, they die within the first 30 days, but might imply, we don't know why they die, but it might be that they just were not um, um, recognized early enough. And they have lower response rates to induction chemotherapy. That's at least what our retrospective study suggests. This has to be validated in prospective studies. But this implies that there are differences in the biology of the disease. And indeed, when we look and when we compare the, um, our knowledge of, of the genetic background of leukemias, so gene mutations. Cytogenetic abnormalities. There are vast differences in the frequencies that we see between um, black and white patients. They're almost triple as often that we see co-binding factor abnormalities, we see fewer NPM1 mutations, we, um, we see um, fewer IDH mutations. But these are like very important, maybe subtle differences that, that gave us the first hit. The study um, I was able to present here was that uh, stemmed from like an effort where I can't think enough really the so many collaborators across the US and and even like beyond the US is that uh, by now one and a half years ago, after seeing these differences, the question came up, what is it all that we do not know? Um, so we were able to, to get, via the Alliance of Clinical Trials and Oncology, access to, um, by now, 100 um, samples from African-American patients that were all treated on, on cooperative group trials. Um, and we performed whole exome, tumor normal, and transcriptome sequencing, and were able to look really unbiasedly at the DNA, at, the, at, at novel gene mutations, copy number variations, gene fusions. Um, and and, uh, transcriptomic changes. And then um, at the end, within an even larger cohort, we're able to look um, at outcome associations. And what we found um, was was quite stunning. Um, There were a total of 162 genes that we found that were recurrently mutated, um, and two thirds of those, um, if we would compare it to one of the largest um, sequencing cohorts that we have on white patients, which is coming from the BEAT-AML study where um, the amazing Jeff Tynard, um, Shannon McWeeny, Dan bottomly, they reanalyzed their entire cohort um, to make sure that nothing was missed so that we don't just say there's something new, even though um, it might have just not been reported in their study. No, really, two thirds of the genes that we find recurrently mutated in, in, in black patients are not recurrently mutated in white patients. Um, and some of the genes, a total of 10 um, are mutated um, um, in 4% of black patients and less than 1% of whites. And one of the genes um, even in 7%, which is higher um, than p53 mutations that higher than many of our common gene mutations that we see. We see novel gene fusions, especially um, differences in co-binding factor um, um, breakpoints in here. Um, fusions that we have never thought about before. And one of the very um, important other findings that we have is that when we look at um, the genomic consequences, that's how I like to call it. If you look at the transcriptomes, which we can do by seeing how similar certain leukemias are based on their genetic background. In general, um, the clustering um, between black and white patients is, is, is pretty similar, but they're very interesting like very subtle differences um, that, that might have a, a high importance. And one of them that was especially striking to me is that there is a cluster of patients that um, resemble plastic syndrome patients. So they have, if you compare the, the, the phenotype, the, the transcriptomic phenotype um, of, of these patients, they look a lot like MDS patients. Many of them have mutations or um, cytogenetic changes that we usually find in MDS patients. but Many of them do not, um, and they still look like it. That means that they have other other reasons to behave like this. And we know that the specific myelodysplastic syndrome like um, leukemia belongs to the poorest outcome um, prognosticators. But what was especially interesting is that within this cluster, it's not that we had more black patients in the year, but the patients were very, very young. Usually we see it in old patients. And that's very interesting because studies in other cancers have shown um, that um, stress um, and like financial toxicities, um, external, internal stressors, you name it, um, can really change the genetic makeup and and can can lead to to cancer initiation and evolution in here. And and, and I personally wonder um, if this early onset of myelodysplasia might be caused by some of these internal external stressors. what we what we then, um, as a next step, looked at was whether the gene mutations that we use on an everyday basis to decide how we treat our patients that are um, in the NCCN, that's in the Euro- European Leukemia Net, um, are these mutations um, performing in the same way to predict the survival to intensive chemotherapy in black patients? And we did this based on very um, rigorous multivariable models, and it turned out um, that we found very different gene mutations or with opposing effects to what we usually see in white patients. Um, the strongest outcome predictors were mutations in the genes called NPM1, NRAS, and IDH2, um, together with myelodysplasia-related gene mutations. Now, you, you could say, AKF, heard of all these genes before, but well, then let me please tell you that, the, for example, the outcome impact of NPM1, um, is that it is the strongest adverse um, survival prognosticator. For white patients, if you have an NPM1 mutation, um, in the absence of flt 3 atd you're considered favorable risk. You are not regularly considered for transplant and for a CR if you don't have me- a measurable residual disease. And black patients, especially the same thing if you have an NPM1 mutation, if you do not have a flt 3 atd these are the ones who have the worst survival, um, less than 10% alive. Um, so, this means that these patients, and very often they are young, uh, currently and not um, intensely enough or not with the right agent enough um, treated um, in the frontline regimen. Um, the second thing that I, like I said, IDH mutations associated with very poor outcome. Also, very interesting. This is not one of the survival prognosticators currently in our guidelines. And again, these are younger patients. So, there is an opportunity here. We can use these novel agents. And they have not been tested in, 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 as I said at the very beginning, much out of um, the European ancestries, right? But we, we or venetoclax, where well, we know that it works very well in IDH mutated patients. Is there an opportunity to use them in the frontline earlier now that we know that the survival of IDH mutated patients and young black patients is less than 20%. So um, again, if we change these classifications, we can, we can reclassify um, and really optimize the, the, uh, the treatment choices for like uh, a large part of our patient population. The last thing, um, I, I, uh, w- w- like two last things to say is, um, but it also was very concerning from the study based on all the new mutations that we found is that um, almost 10% when we look at all the gene panels that we regularly do in our clinic, and there's a big overlap between them because these are just the most common mutations that we know about if we um, check uh, if we look in, in in the black patients that we sequenced almost 10 percent are what we call mutation negatives they do not have a mutation that means that they are thrown in my favorite european leukemia net group the intermediate risk which means we have actually no clue how they are doing um, and this means um, nobody really knows how they should be treated. They may or may not be considered for transplant if there is a donor. I don't have time today to talk about all these other influences, transplant availability, um, all these, these, these other factors that also 100% and all economic features that impact the survival outcomes. But I am very convinced from the data that we have that it's our, um, our duty almost uh, we, that we have to understand the biology better in order to provide similar care, that we have to increase our knowledge is after we sequence a thousand patients, if we find out at the end, the mutations are very similar and everything the same, I, I'm, I'm very happy that, that that would be great. I don't think so, but I think we have to do the effort so that we know and that we don't only assume, we have to put the same resources into this knowledge for all our patients and to, to bright, to provide um, equitable care. And um, I hope that we, with the support from all the community, and it was amazing to see the uh, reactions from industry partners, from, from all the, the scientists, from basic scientists, from from clinicians um, around the world, that we can work together to design prospective trials, that, that prospective trials have to be associated with rigorously designed correlative studies. We can't wait for these trials to to we would need to enroll a thousand patients we don't have time for that we need correlative studies that inform us in real time um, and that for example using using other model system at the same time that inform us which drug is really working best so that we do not lose every day patients along the way thank you so much for listening to today's podcast we hope you enjoyed be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean. Until next time.